welcome back to the Navis. Let's start over. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Namas Teach podcast. So at this point, we're into our respective school years. And I've heard from educator friends all over the country that this has been one of the most difficult years, if not the most difficult year yet. We're continuing to process so much as it pertains to teaching amid a never-ending pandemic, coping with the effects of learning loss over the past two years. And I don't know about you guys, our Namas Teach community, but I felt like early on, we were talking a lot about the ideas of grace and self-care, and they were discussed heavily in our schools by our administrators and just as a collective conversation. And now it feels like that idea of grace is gone. So prioritizing self-care and boundaries has been marginalized as we're being pushed to compensate for the past two years of learning loss. Teacher resignation and frustration is at an all-time high. And as always, we're just right in here with you in the trenches trying to figure it out every single day as we show up for our students while simultaneously trying not to lose sight of ourselves. So in a minute, I'm going to turn it over to Tisha, who will introduce today's amazing guest. And I'm sure our guest will inspire us and provide some more support and words of wisdom. But I just wanted to say I'm thinking of you all as we continue to navigate these times. Thank you so much, Jen, and for shedding light. That's all we do here at the Namas Teach podcast with educators just trying to give that support. And we're all in this together. We're all going through this right now at this time. But today, I want to introduce our amazing guest. We're so happy to have her with us. Her name is Letitia Vaughn. She is an education revolutionary who has exhibited innovation at the classroom level as a principal and at the district level over her 25 year career. Known for her ability to develop education leaders, Letitia has coached and strengthened educational systems in the Midwest, the Southwest, the East Coast, and through Letitia Nicole Counseling, formerly Vaughn Brandon Counseling, Letitia is the co-founder of E3, Educate, Empower, Elevate, LLC, which is an organization that focuses on equitable outcomes for Black and Brown children and families in the region through increasing the diversity of teachers and leaders in the education and nonprofit space and authentically engaging, elevating voices of parents and children. As a Chief Operating Officer for Tri-County Cradle Collaborative, a backbone cradle to career, organization. She oversees strategy and primary leadership for the kindergarten readiness and high school graduation networks to ensure equity and authentic engagement in supporting ambitious goals for all the children of the Tri-County area. And when we talk about Tri-County here, those of us, you know, we're in South Carolina, we're talking about the Berkeley, Charleston, and Dorchester counties of South Carolina. I could go on and on, but I will have Letitia's full bio in the show notes for the episode. But we have with us an extraordinary woman and a all around fierce badass. I'd like to say Letitia is all of that. And we're so inspired to have her and so happy to have her and share her voice with you today here at Namas Teach. So I'll just get right on into it. Uh, Letitia, I'll open it up for you just to welcome our guests and just uh, say a little bit before we start our questions. Well, thank you so much, first of all, um, Tisha and Jen, for inviting me to participate in this conversation. 
Um, I definitely count it a privilege just to be here with you this Sunday afternoon. Um, and thank you so much for the badass compliment because I don't know if you all have seen the, those series of books like you're a badass at making money or so anyway I'm like all in the, into those books I read them a couple years ago so definitely thanks for the compliment um, and just ready like really looking forward to this conversation today um, and hopefully um, I can share more of myself and my life's work as well as learn more about um, your listeners and the, and, and the work that you guys are doing. Thank you, Letitia. We're so glad to have you here as well here at Namas Teach. Uh, Jen and I created this podcast as a way to create an inspirational space for educators to connect, rejuvenate, and to remember who we are. We know that your career in education is substantial and you've done so many incredible things throughout your career You've had many different experiences in all facets of education. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your journey in education, like how you started, as well as how you support others and how you stay inspired? Yep. Um, so as you guys shared in my bio, and thanks for reading that, and I, I didn't expect you to read all of that. I just always send that out. But um I have been in education for over 25 years, which now I can't believe how long it's been. Um, but for me, um, there were a few pivotal moments and I can, I'll tell you about one of the pivotal moments and then I'll just give you a little bit about my trajectory and then um, answer the question about how I stay inspired. So for me, um, I was a public school teacher. My first job I got so actually, even backing up further, I got a degree in accounting first, even though I knew I was supposed to be a teacher because everybody was like, you're good at math and you're not gonna make money as a teacher. So I actually got a full degree in accounting from the University of Missouri, um, worked at a mutual fund and hated it and ended up going back to school to get certified to teach. And so um, back in those days, I didn't even finish my full student teaching. I got a job because there was a need. Uh, in uh, fourth grade, and I ended up teaching 31 fourth graders. And at that time in Kansas City, um, they sent all the children, the, Kansas City is where I'm from, by the way, originally, um, they sent all the children who spoke a second language to one school. So in my fourth grade class, I probably had like 10 different languages of students being spoken and I only speak English. And so, um, and on top of that, I started in the middle of the year after that class had run out maybe like five teachers. And so it was really, really like a rough start to my teaching career, but actually that ended up being one of my favorite classes. And it just taught me so much about what I didn't know, right? Um, and just a, a little bit of my own background. So prior to that, I never attended a public school. I went to private schools, kindergarten through 12th grade. And I went to private schools because my mother, who was a single mom, sent my sister and I to private schools because when she looked around, she said, well, the mayor doesn't send their children to public school. 
the con the uh, council doesn't send their kids to public school. I want my kids to have the best education. So I literally went to some of the most elite schools going uh, through K through 12 education. And then just suppose that with me being put in a fourth grade classroom with 31 kids and not having the skills that I needed to do what was best for those kids. So that first year was really pivotal for me, um, taught me a lot about what I didn't know um, and what I needed to learn. Um, I went on to continue teaching at that school for a couple years. Um, at that time, I was going through some life changes and ended up um, moving. So I worked in a couple other states. I worked in Kentucky. Um, but then I got the opportunity to be a part of a startup charter school with the previous mentor back in Kansas City. And so I was part of a starting team at a public charter school in Kansas City. And I also was part of a, a startup charter school in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I've also worked in traditional public schools here in Charleston. Um, and here I was a school principal and I worked in um, central office. And so I think those like drastically different experiences in my own personal education, as well as how I was able to teach and lead shaped um, my passion for equity. Um, and so for the past few years, I actually left um, my job in the um, school district a few years ago. Um, you mentioned in my bio, I've been doing consulting work. So I do um, consulting work. I also um, work for a local nonprofit as their chief operating officer and have formed another um, organization with my business partner, Audrey Lane E3. Um, and really the consistent piece in all of my work has been educational equity because I have seen um, firsthand through various experiences um, that the opportunity to attend good schools is not equal. And it is only determined by where you live in your race. And so in the South particularly. And so um, for me, that's just not okay. And so um, the last few years I've been focused more on um, systemic barriers. So, and I think that's really important. And I know we'll probably talk about it a little later because um, many of the people making policy have not had experience inside a school. And so it is really important, I think for your listeners um, to think about the work beyond the school building, because if we don't influence the policies with close experience of what actually happens and works, then we'll continue to get the kind of policies that we get. Um, so that's a brief kind of summary of my education trajectory. I think the other question you asked was, how do I say inspired? Yes. It really is with connecting with people like you guys. So I think it's really important for me to stay close to the ground. I think um, um, what's important to me is that the voices of the intended beneficiaries of our work lead and guide what we do. Um, so I like to be close to parents. I like to be close to um, nonprofits or um, organizations that are doing work with children and families. 
And that's to me where the inspiration is because they're like you guys in the classroom. I like, first of all, I can't even imagine being in the classroom during a pandemic. I can't imagine being a school leader during a pandemic. Um, so my hat's off to everyone who is continuing to do this on a daily basis. Um, but, you know, that's where the real work is, in my opinion. And so that's where my inspiration comes Thank you, Letitia. As you mentioned, there's so many people that are making these policies, that are making these decisions that are anything but connected. And so as we continue to you know, become people of influence, that we stay connected to what's important. So I really appreciate you emphasizing that. And so I found your journey to be really interesting. And especially because you have experience in both the public and private sector, the nonprofit, and then even at a period you were kind of doing both simultaneously as you work for Charleston County School District and Charleston Promise Neighborhood. So I wondered if you feel like you have had more of an impact in one setting versus another, um, whether it was like the private sector, the nonprofit, public, and what would you say to listeners who are considering a shift themselves that they're considering like, where can I be most impactful? Yep, um, I love this question. I think um, for me, I don't think it was a, a, a um, where I was more impactful versus um, a, one place versus another. I think it's just different. Um, I actually love being directly tied to schools and children and families and actually um, you can actually shift the trajectory of a family, um, which is generational change, right? Um, with your work in a classroom or with your work as a school leader with families, um, building those trusting relationships. Um, I, so many times I have parents come to me with, you know, I just need advice about this, this, and this, or parents who are engaged in parent university having these ahas about, um, parenting and how to help support their children more meaningfully. Um, at the school that I was principal of here, uh, North Charleston Elementary School, we actually had like wraparound services housed in the school. So we had partnerships with the Department of Mental Health, which um, we know many of our families need access to those services. Um, we had a communities and schools person who connected our families with some just like basic needs resources. And so I think you know, that the impact that we can have as um, people who are working directly with children and families can actually change the trajectory of families' life. We had financial stability courses. Um, and so things like that, I think, are really important. So I don't, I don't value one over the other. I think um, the work I'm doing now, as I referenced earlier, is more focused on systemic barriers to um, children and families having access to a quality education, which I also think is very impactful um, because consistently we know that there are levers that help support change. And many times um, poor or children, black and brown children just don't have access or don't know how to navigate those systems. And so um, part of the goal is to reduce those barriers. Um, and so I would just say, you know, I think it, I think it's both. Um, and then you asked a question about what would I say to listeners who are considering a shift? Um, so I, like I talk to people about this all the time. And I think for me, one of the things that was really important as I began to think about the shift was knowing what my purpose was. So I got really clear 
uh, several years ago about what my purpose was. I also, though, um, just to be quite honest, was experiencing difficulties because at the time when I was a principal and worked in central office in Charleston County, I had two young children. So I had a five-year-old and I had a two-year-old. And unfortunately, education is just not friendly for families, right? And so I remember like missing my child's first day of kindergarten because I was the principal of school at the time and I could not take her and watch her going to school. And that literally like brought tears to my eyes. I was like, I'm up here taking care of everybody else's kids and I can't even take care of my own kids, right? And I remember like being in the school and uh, elementary school here in Charleston starts at 710. The kids walk through the door at that time. I had to be at work at 630. I had to pay somebody to watch my child because the day the Montessori school she went to at the time didn't open until seven o'clock. So I had to pay somebody to go in early so I could drop her off at 610 so I could be at school before 630 so I could be there before the teachers walk through the door to be there before the kids walk through the door, right? And so for me, it was an issue of like flexibility. That was actually one of the main reasons I left um, public traditional education because I just did not have flexibility when I wanted to be able to go uh, watch up uh, a performance in the middle of the of the day, or I wanted to have the flexibility to volunteer if I wanted to, you know, at their school so I could be there for them. And so once I knew that, um, I began to, so it was like the need for flexibility, but also understanding my purpose. I had to reimagine my path, right? And I think sometimes um, teachers or educators, even the idea of like leaving the district is a lot for some people, but understand that like there is life outside of that and you can actually create a path, which sometimes is um, more profitable for you and gives you the flexibility that you need. But it was a matter for me of connecting with people who could help me map out what that path could be. Um, and so definitely, I think, you know, knowing your purpose and knowing what you need, if you're thinking about making the shift is would be a starting point in my opinion. Thank you so much for that response. I know that that's so relatable to so many of our listeners, especially like the home piece. And that is part of your purpose, right? Like being there for your children, your family, that's your purpose. And so I just think um, it's worth like repeating, like there are other paths, there are alternative paths. I think we've had conversations with past guests about that too. If you don't like the path, there's always a new one you can create or find. So I think that was a really helpful response. Thank you. Thank you. And when you told the story about not going to your daughter's first day of kindergarten, I, I had like a visceral response. I don't have children of my own, but I could feel, I could just feel the gravity of that and how important that is. And you said there is not a lot of flexibility with families in education. And those of us who work in education, we take care of other children and families all the time. But most, a lot of times they forget that we are human too, and we have families also that need nurturing. You kind of alluded to, and we, there, your story is so interwoven into our questions and vice versa, but what are some of the most important issues you think, and you talked about this, so if you want to just move on, we can, or just briefly touch on it, facing the families and communities in the Tri-County area, 
and across the South in general. I know right now we're experiencing so much in the political realm with voter suppression and you know all the voting laws and issues across the South and uh, people exercising their right and to have their voices heard. And we know that before the pandemic, there were inequalities and inequities that were very present. Those of us who work in this field, we know it, but through the pandemic, it was, the spotlight was put on it um, tenfold. So what are some of the, the inequities, disparities and health and economics that you feel we need to focus our attention on in this time right now? Yep. Um, so I would agree with you. So we, like we all know the inequities and they were present prior to COVID. Um, COVID has definitely shown a, a, a spotlight on many of the issues that our children and families are facing. Um, equities, inequities, like just access to like digital equity and access to the internet and having the ability to connect or having devices, which, you know, to me, we still have families like in our rural communities and even downtown Charleston that have, you know, have issues with connecting. And that, I mean, to me, that's just like, it doesn't even make sense <laughs> in the 21st century that we're still having that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, more importantly for me right now, it's the issue of um, economic mobility for our children and families and having access, our families to have access to um, living wages, adequate health care, um, the resources they need to be successful. And I think um, the mistake I made, I would say, especially early on in my education career is trying to treat education and isolation like we can't fix education by itself so like one of the biggest things that i noticed when i lived here um i was principal in north charleston north charleston if you don't know this has the highest eviction rate one of the highest eviction rates in the country three percent of the students population was transient so they would be either evicted or they would have to move so how can you even talk about like a quality education when two-thirds of your kids stay and one-third of your kids go in and out every single year so of the 500 kids I had about 150 kids went in and out throughout the year because of eviction and how can you talk to a family about like what they need to do if they don't have stable housing or if they don't have food or if they don't have access to healthcare, right? I mean, we had children who uh, couldn't see a dentist because their parents didn't have insurance and they had abscesses on their teeth. So how can you concentrate on learning when your mouth is on fire? I've had a toothache. <laughs> I'm not trying to do anything else, right? And so I think, first of all, just thinking about like, we have to have cross-sector collaboration and partnerships. So education just can't work on education issues. And we can't expect teachers and school leaders to solve all the ills of what's happening, right? Um, and that we 
yes, there's a lot. So on the other end, I, I, I have very high expectations for educators, right? And I know the impact that teachers have on children and families. But I also think some of it is very unrealistic knowing the conditions that a lot of children and families um, are dealing with, right? Um, so I think like economic mobility is really important. Um, in Charleston, what we know about specifically black and brown families is that um, we are overrepresented in the hospitality industry, in the hospitality industry underpays, right? So you have people uh, making hourly seven and eight dollars and nine dollars an hour trying to live in Charleston, which is, I mean, it's impossible, right? Um, even the wages for teachers, that's impossible to live in Charleston, right? And so this idea of everybody um, deserving a living wage, because if we all can have that, a better quality of life, that's only going to boost everybody, right? Um, so I think that's really important right now. I would say just within education, I think um, the, the, the politicization of education right now is very disheartening, in my opinion, specifically these conversations around like critical race theory and masking and all this. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense. First of all, critical race theory isn't even taught in schools. So that's number one. But two, can we actually accurately talk about history and what actually happened, right? Um, and so I think um, that's really important. I think representation is really important. So I, you shared in my bio, like one of the things I'm really very passionate about is that the population must be reflective of the students that we're serving. Um, when, I'm, when I first took over my school, um, there were no certified black teachers in a school that was 98% black and brown. Uh, there were uh, teacher's aides, day porter, cafeteria staff, but th that's highly problematic that that is still going on right now, right? And so things like um, representation, culturally responsive pedagogy, um, and all of us to actually clearly understand what it means to be um, anti-racist and working against a system that was not set up to support all children is very important, especially right now. <clears throat> Absolutely, that is so true. And there's so much going on right now. And I think that I really appreciate, you know, the, your personal professional mission and your focus on social justice anti-racism specifically. So I'm wondering what resources you have that you can recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about their own biases, like, because I think that's a place that it starts, but I'm open to your opinion on that. And then resources for anti-racism, any words of wisdom you have for our listeners as they embark on this work um, in Charleston, in our country, in other, you know, states, other countries, just where can they start? What, do, you know, in your experience being at the forefront, how can educators support this work and really dive in and do the work that's necessary for them to um, work toward that change and eradication. Yep. Um, so first, um, just resources. Um, so definitely um, a starting point for me always is Racial Equity Institute. Um, I know that leaders through REI, um, REI is put on locally here by the YWCA, whose mission is to eradicate racism. 
And so they have um, two courses that you can enroll in, REI 1 and REI 2. Um, REI 1 focuses on getting a framework, uh, having a clear framework about systemic racism in this country. And so when I first took REI 1, and I now have taken REI 1 three times, um, you, it was very eye-opening because I just learned a lot that I didn't know because unfortunately most of us are not accurately taught history. Um, and so REI 2 then um, begins to take you through how you, um, back to your question or your comment, Jen, about internalized bias and things like that, it begins to take you through that process. So REI 1 and 2, I think, are all um, are both very helpful and a great starting point. If you're not familiar with um, Ibram Kendi, who is, uh, I think he's the founder of Boston University Center for Anti-Racist um, Research. Um, he has a couple of books that I think are also good starting points. One is How to Be an Anti-Racist. Another one is Stamped, um, which also talks about the history of United States. Um, I'm currently reading a book called Mindful of Race. Um, that is by, her last name is King. Ruth King. King. Yeah, Ruth King. Yep. Yeah. Ruth King, um, which has been awesome because I've been going through a cohort around mindfulness specifically and how to eliminate um, racism. And then um, I also have a, um, a daily um, email that I've signed up for. Um, by her name is Nicole Cordoza, and it's um, Anti-Racism Daily, um, and she gives really, really great information just across the board about how to be anti-racist um, and resources, and also connects you with other resources um, to learn more. Um, there's an organization called Embrace Race that's specifically focused on how to talk to your children about racism or talk to children about racism, and they always have great workshops. Um, I actually um, have been working, so a colleague and I um, got together last year specifically around um, how to support educators um, with this idea of anti-racism, and we've been working on an online or an asynchronous cur uh, curriculum with a tech company um, called ARC, it's um, Anti-Racist Curriculum for Teachers. And so um, I'll be able to share more of you more with that about you when we finish that. But I think like that's a huge gap. Um, it's a huge gap because many times um, our schools and our school districts just don't know how to talk about it, right? I think um, how you implement that in the classroom is also very different than like just training a leader. Um, and so, um, I think it's just really important um, when you think about like how to get started, you have to have, um, I, I personally believe that you partner with someone, join a group, like all of you learning together is really important. Um, and if you, you know, I think there are um, same race learning groups. And then there are cross race, uh, race learning groups that are also very important because in this work, we know it's very sensitive um, and we know that people have to feel safe to be able to share things that are um, part of their experience. And so that's why I would recommend, I would recommend both. 
thank you for, for those resources. And uh, many of the people, Jen and I were shaking our heads, if the listeners could see our head shaking, we were like Bible heads, we're shaking our heads so much because the people that you named are our people too, we resonate with them. Um, but you mentioned something important about sharing spaces with other races or cultures. And a lot of times this work of healing uh, in terms of race should be done in racial affinity groups. And oftentimes from my experiences when I'm with mixed groups, I see a lot of the heavy lifting or the work being put on the shoulders of the people of color in that group. And, and the other people, namely white people in the group look to the people of color for their healing, but we have to heal as well, those of us of, of, that are of color. So it's unfair to us to, to uh, be in those groups sometimes because we're trying to heal our own pain in a sense, we pass our pain back and forth while other groups watch and expect us to have all the answers. So I'm glad you made that point. But I'm going to pivot now a little bit and we talk and, and really this all, um, it's all related to what we're talking about in this work. It's important for us to practice self-care. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what it is. We know what self-care is, but I want you to talk about how important it is to take care of ourselves as we do this work, because this work is hard and it's challenging and it can bring up a lot of strong and hard emotions and parts of ourselves that we don't want to face or show the world. So what are ways that we can take care of ourselves as we continue this work? And how do you take care of yourself? Because we know that when our cups are empty, we can't pour into those that we serve with empty cups. That is like one of my favorite sayings, you can't pour from an empty cup. Um, I think um, I, early on in my career, did not in, understand the importance of self-care. I think the last probably 10 years, I have become a pro because what I recognize is I can't give to other people what I don't have inside of myself. And so I just would encourage folks I mean, I literally, I encourage everybody I know. And, and self-care is different for, for everyone, right? So what you deem as self-care, I may not deem as self-care. Um, but for me, um, I have a morning routine that there has to be, like there's, there has to be an act of God for me not to do this. So every morning, pretty much, I exercise some form of exercise, meaning I move my body. So, and actually let me back up. So before I even get out of bed, I'm gonna go all the way there. Before I even get out of bed, my, my um, practice is to express gratitude. So I, I'm like just grateful to have breath, to be able to get up and move my legs and arms, right? Because a lot of people just can't even do that. Um, here lately, I've been, as I'm rising and waking up, like playing some kind of affirmation because I think um to and I know for others probably the same like this last year and a, and a half has been tough like it's been rough for me I don't know about everybody else but I've been having a hard time <laughs> so it's been I, rough for everybody everybody yeah so I have to have um and this is like a whole other conversation like the mental chatter that I think a lot. So I'm an introvert, I'm in my head a lot. So for me, I have to have um, 
language or like I have to start my day off hearing positive things like that literally sets the tone for my day because if not I'm left to my own devices and I start thinking about everything I got to do who I got to talk to like all of that so I intentionally like turn on YouTube to like um, a couple of uh, pages that I subscribe to that either just give affirmations or like just positive something I'm hearing when I'm waking up. Then I move on to like my exercise and I try to do like 30 minutes. I do a circuit. Um, if I have time, I do a short walk with my dog, whatever, whatever. And then I move to my um, deck and I, I have my coffee. So if, while I'm exercising, I turn my coffee maker on, whatever sit out on my deck because I love outside. I was telling Tisha this before, like I love outside. So I sit on my deck with my coffee as long as it's not raining and either have some kind of silence, meaning like I meditate, I journal. I have some kind of meditative practice that I do in order to just get my head ready for the day. And that usually takes me about an hour, hour and a half. So I'm not one of those people that can just like wake up and go to work. I literally, and if I try to do that, like I've tried and my day is horrible. So this is literally how I set the tone and I'm able to manage through everything that happens throughout the day without popping off on somebody. Um, and then if I'm really good, like at the end of the day, I reflect and evaluate how my day is, but that's sporadic. So that's part of my daily self-care. Um, but for me, self-care is like I travel. So it is a part of my flexibility is like, I want to get up and go somewhere when I want to get up and go, right? So I'm here now, I'm getting ready to go on a trip, another trip, and um, I'm going overseas and I'm super excited about that, right? Um, so I love, I love to just be in different spaces, experience different cultures, um, with or without people. Um, and so I think you have to figure out like what works for you as far as self-care. Of course, like going to get a massage every once in a while is great. Bubble bath is great. You know, all those things. But for me, like I, I can't do that frequently. So I had to build in habits for myself that helped me to literally stay sane. Because what this year and a half has taught me is that, what, you know, life is not promised. I've seen a lot of people die. Um, I've seen a lot of people burn out because of stress and worry and all that. And I'm just not willing to do that. And so I had to prioritize myself. Um, I literally was texting a friend this morning because she's um, has stuff going on. And I was like, the work will be there tomorrow. Literally, if we just stop, the work isn't going anywhere. You can pick it back up. Um, but you, your health, your mental health, and you taking care of yourself is of the utmost importance. I really appreciate that response. And we've talked about that a few times here, but it's really, it is a personalized journey, right? Like what self-care looks like yep. and figuring that out for you and getting to know yourself. And that's something we've talked to listeners about or um, guests about is like bring your whole self to the classroom or to the environment as well. And in order to do that, you need that personalized self-care journey that looks right for you. And so I love that. I've loved so much about our conversation. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground from your trajectory, your journey. I love what you said about, you know, fixing or healing, like the generational change and how if we focus on 
helping the families that helps the trajectory of everybody. So that's really deep. I love the resources you've given us on anti-racism and how we could do the work. I mean, this has been a quality conversation. Do you have anything else you want to say? Because I don't, I feel like I'm still processing all the amazing things you shared with us today, Leticia. I really don't. I just um, appreciate the opportunity to, sh to talk to you guys today to learn more about the work you guys are doing and kind of why you're doing the podcast. I also um, just want to encourage all your listeners to um, utilize their voices because I think everybody has um, a unique um, opportunity to be able to shift how things are happening. Um, and so I just would tie it back to this idea around policy and things like that. And mainly because that's just where I am right now. Like we need people who are on the ground, who are doing the work to be able to shift some of these decisions that are being made about how things happen specifically in schools. And so like my philosophy is always, if given a seat at the table, I'm going to use my voice while I'm there. And sometimes I have to make a seat at the table for things that I know are really important. Um, so I just have appreciated this opportunity to be in conversation with you guys. Yes, we have too. And uh, so many nuggets you gave us. We're writing notes in the, the document now to put in the show notes and we'll have this episode. Uh, hopefully I can get it posted up later this evening, if not tomorrow, but it doesn't uh, take long to post it. We got to get this one out so that our listeners can hear your voice and, and know um, the work that you're doing in the world. And not only just for the Tri-County area in South Carolina, but globally. You said you like to travel and I know your voice touches those that you meet. You're just that kind of person. Your light is so bright and, and we just appreciate you so much for uh, being with us and spending uh, these past 45 minutes or so with us. So we'll have uh, links to everything Letitia talked about in the show notes and some of the books and some of the resources and ways that you can connect to her if you want to uh, reach out and connect to her. So that's all for now. Jan, you got anything else? Just uh, wrap us up. Yeah, I mean, it was great hearing from Letitia. It's been great to connect with our community again. I feel like it's not mid-September, but it's been like six months or never ending. So um, you'll hear from us a lot more. I just, you know, from this conversation is like, don't let yourself get so burnt out that you're not connected to the important work. You're not connected to those on the ground, to our students, to our purpose, and then that you're not connected to the global work. Because if we're seeing what's happening on the ground and if we're feeling the burnout, use that fire, use that burn for something greater. And um, I really love the, you know, use your seat at the table, but if you don't have that seat at the table, make one. So mm -hmm. on that note, I'm going to say bye to everybody. And, uh, Thanks so much for being here and you'll hear from us again soon. Thank, Thank you, you guys.